Hi there, my name is Brett Thompson, and I beat the often path by not eating three ingredients, which led me to living in Berlin for a couple of years, traveling around San Francisco, and getting an idea to essentially end factory farming in Africa. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. Joining me today is Brett Thompson, the CEO of Mzansi Meat Co., Africa's first cell-based meat startup. Using cellular agriculture technology, the company hopes to produce cruelty-free cell-cultured protein products, aka lab-grown meat, if you will. It's something that I personally see as the future of meat consumption on our planet, and it's a necessary step towards a more sustainable future. Today, we talk about taking an unpopular stand for something that you believe in, building a company around it and in uncharted waters, and how cultured meat represents a massive chance to make access to high-quality protein possible for millions or even billions of people around the world. So here is Brett Thompson, CEO of Mzansi Meat Co. Well, welcome to the show, Brett. And I think I speak for everybody when I say, what are the three are things? <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, it's we the, need to know. <laughs> I don't know. I thought we should play it out a bit, you know, um, but no. The, <laughs> okay. It, well, it was, well, no, we'll, the, we'll keep them guessing. We'll keep them guessing. And, and, and I'll tell you about the three ingredients and why they kind of um, sort of make it, it just matters a bit because I, the story is I was in, I was in Budapest. Uh, I was walking along with a good friend of mine, a Danish guy. Uh, and we were, you know, just having the time of our lives. And um, our, both of our lives had been significantly changed by the fact that we had altered our diet. Um, and we had diet, the dietary change had come about for both of us because we were trying to find, um, I guess, a path um, of, of how to eat better. And uh, we were now, both our careers had changed drastically. We had originally met in New York. Um, and it was quite an incredible journey that we had both gone on in the past, the, at that stage, five years. Um, he's now working uh, in an international, um, international NGO uh, in animal advocacy. And then I came back to South Africa to start an um, uh, alternative protein company, which I run uh, now. And, uh, and, and we were work, walking, I mean, we we're drinking a couple of beers. So, so that wasn't the ingredient. But um, what the three were. <laughs> okay, <dang. laughs> okay. All right. So, yeah, I'm not, a, I'm, I'm not there yet. I, 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 I okay. understand the benefit of eating, drinking uh, less booze. But uh, at the moment, beer is one of my, uh, one of my favorites. But um, yeah, no, the three ingredients. Yeah, I mean, I, mean you spe- I, I found out that you just spent a few, a few, quite a bit of time in the Netherlands. So, um, yeah, they, that's they right. Make some, Pretty good There's beer. more beer there than water. I can't exactly. imagine. Yeah, people have done I it, mean, but it, not me. No, and I think there's the Amstel River. Is I mean, yes. I know that's not a, that's a beer, but it, I feel like you can probably drink it if you try. Yeah. Um, there's probably more <laughs> beer in that river than there is water. Beer and bikes yeah, exactly. make up ninety percent of that <laughs> river. Yeah, and um, oh, I had a good time when I was in Amsterdam, and um, so I um, yeah, I, I mean, the three ingredients were um, meat, egg, and dairy. And, um, you know, it was a pretty, um, a decision that I, I made 10, 15 years ago to, to stop consuming these things. And I thought about, I didn't really think about it much at the time. I thought it was maybe just a rebellious, uh, decision to make and, and, and kind of a, what you do when you're in second year university trying to explore. But, um, it, uh, it took me on this incredible path and, and, um, I spent 10 to 15 years then working in, the advocacy and, and promotion of, I guess, an alternative or what I believe is an um, improvement of the current way that we eat. So, yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, and it's funny. We find ourselves in an interesting topic here, and I like this personally. It's where I like to dig in. The world at large has an issue from all sides with what we're talking about, with what we're doing. I can see the negative YouTube comments now because there's either the camp of, I'm not going to eat that because the world is totally fine. Everything that we've been doing is totally fine. We don't need to change anything. Everything is perfect. There's a lot of hate from that side. But of course, what I found that sort of surprised me, but I guess not really, is that the real vegan communities, of which I was once a part, but not uh, 100% anymore, they also take issue with this idea of cultured meat, and for very strange reasons. I thought that they would embrace this kind of thing wholeheartedly, but they often take issue because they say, if even one fish was harmed to capture the cells that can produce 10 million artificial cultured fish sandwiches, then I can't do it because it's against veganism. And my vegan ethos says I can't harm a single animal at any time for any reason. Obviously, cultured meat might fall into that same category. So we find ourselves caught in between two giant groups of people, sort of in a no man's land, very much off the beaten path here. How do you juggle that kind of place, both as a person and as building a business, and it knowing that it's good, but that people just may not understand it for an extended period of time? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question, and I think that understanding component, I'm sure we'll unpack later. But I think that's a key, a key to the whole thing. Um, you know, I always found it funny that uh, we have a target on our backs as a, as a, as a small industry, like we do. Uh, the cultured uh, meat industry and, and, and probably alternative meat industry in, in general, um, which is generally like kind of the sort of regenerative farming types, as well as the ones that you say that there's everything is fine and there's no need to change. And then the very sort of on, on the other, maybe generally left-hand side of the equation, um, your animal rights activists and, and, and vegan activists. And, you know, probably the most amount of hate mail uh, I've received personally in the company has actually come from vegans, uh, which right, not surprised. Yeah, you know, which which is you know personally, I mean, I I I wasn't surprised, and I, I'd worked in alternative proteins for 10, 15 years, and I understand um, I understand where they're coming from, um, as much as I try to understand where folks from you know who who are in favor of continuing a conventional animal agriculture, um, you know, the idea of that you're still using an animal, uh, the idea that um, it's not tested in terms of um, whether or not it can scale and truly replace. Um, so why are we spending money here? We should be spending money on animal advocacy education, for example. I think that's also kind of um, probably one of the concerns that they have. It's, it's a resource that could be used better at actually saying to people, no, animals, we shouldn't even think about chicken as a replacement. It should be no right. chicken whatsoever. That's and, a false and, dichotomy, and I, but I, yeah, yeah, I understand it. Yeah, and, and, and the thing is, like, you know, um, and to be honest, it's tough. But you ask, how do I deal with it? It's tough. Uh, I, yeah. um, I, you know, I've run a couple of charities as well um, in, in my time, and, and we've done a lot of work in uh, meat reduction. Um, so we're not talking about complete removal of meat and animal products, but rather it's Meatless Mondays, um, as you, you, you might be familiar mm -hmm. yep. uh, with. We promote that, and we get a lot of pushback and saying, well, why are you guys asking for something which is – if it's bad, then it should be completely eradicated. Right. And, um, and then you know, what I've just found that the people that have these strong feelings on, um, to, to continue eating at conventional animal agricultural products is, um, it's probably not best to engage with them. I mean, they, you know, they're not the target audience, uh, no. and the people in the middle are, and, and, and I think that's how I deal with it is to say that there's just so many conversations that we have within the mainstream or just in the center 
where people are so interested and excited. And I think, you know, you've alluded to it that they have this feeling that the way that we consume animals is probably not going to be the way that we do it in a hundred years. Absolutely. But how do we get there? And I think that's what we're trying to do. And it's, and it's about progress. And I think people like you and me see that imperfect progress is still progress. And that's part of the scientific method. And this is something that always kind of fascinates me about the public at large. When you have the scientific method, you have a hypothesis. That hypothesis might be false. For example, my hypothesis for the show is that we can have some sort of enlightened capitalism or that we can make a business while doing better things for the environment. There is a chance that my hypothesis is wrong, but that doesn't mean that all of these conversations and the exploration that we're doing is for naught, right? You can try things because all human advancement has come from attempting things. And I'm just amazed at the people who do comment on videos like this saying, oh, that's stupid or that will never work. It's like, but how do you think anything good ever Mm -hmm. happened in humanity but for somebody taking a chance on something that at the time seemed crazy or seemed out outside the box? So I'm I'm completely with you there. And I think that vegans live in a very pure philosophical world, and I don't want to argue with them when they're not present because, I, like I said, I was a hardcore vegan for two years. I know the train of thought, and I love philosophy, and there's a philosophical purity to veganism where you say, yes, it is categorically wrong to do these things just like it is categorically wrong to murder a person, therefore it should be completely eliminated. Of course, the other part of the philosopher in me knows that very few things are black and white in humanity. You know, it's categorically wrong to murder somebody, but what if they kill you first? Or what if they try, you know, what if is war? There are so many nuances. And if you think of like a priest who takes a vow of celibacy, there are so many theoretical things we can say philosophically, I don't want this, but we live in a human imperfect body. People have cravings, they have nostalgia, they have feelings towards these kinds of things. So demanding that level of 100% perfection in a philosophical sense from the average population is is a tough slash impossible sell. And I think you and me look at this kind of thing and we say, okay, everybody loves meat. They love eating beef. They love eating these things. So what can we do to shift that a little bit versus saying you're either 100% over here or 100% not? Yeah. And it- you know, the um, I just want to. Uh, there's a couple of things, and, and I think you and you and I seem to agree upon on some of the ways that we get there. And I, I'd, I'd be a proponent of the market to uh, get us closer to, say, um, environmental capitalism. Maybe you've alluded to enlightened capitalism, but I think the way to get better uh, results is probably through uh, choice and through the market, opposed to um, maybe through government or through a state or something along those yeah. lines. I think that's. Um, you know, that's probably a, a discussion um, uh, as well to be had. But I think um, I also understand. You know, I've worked. I've worked in animal advocacy at the same time of working in alternative protein for ten plus years. Uh, I've worked with a lot of really passionate and committed people that are just committed to improving the lives of animals. And I think the fact that we kind of make fun of that is beyond me. Um, that people are, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's also, it's a, it's, but it's a sign of, of, of how people, I think, collectively, um, are okay with that widespread level of animal abuse. Um, so you, you've got that. So I can understand why if you're someone who's just trying to point that out, you're a, you're a vegan, you're an animal rights activist or someone along those lines saying, um, Hey guys, I'm just trying to point out that you say don't harm dogs and cats. I'm just asking you to include a few more animals. Um, Now, then the problem is what 
and, and this is a problem with, with animal advocacy and, and just as a side note, I used to work for the Center for Effective Vegan Advocacy. Um, so I'm not just, I'm, I'm talking from some level of experience and also just anecdotally, but um, that, was, that was part of the work that I used to do. Um, it, it's also the environment that we find ourselves in. You know? um, meat has gone from the per capita assumption, consumption in the 40s, which was quite small, and overnight industrial agriculture turned to be a ubiquitous consumption um, when it comes to food. Uh, we didn't really realize this, this has happened and attitudes have changed, but it's everywhere. And it's not just ethics that we need to take into con um, consideration, but it's the convenience or it's the, um, it's the way that people, it's the culture component. I mean, if you, uh, like us in South Africa, and, and I know in, in America and the North, uh, definitely in the global North, meat is a sort of center part of every single meal that we, we, we consume. And it's not like that in India. It's not like that in parts of Southeast Asia, but it is in the north, uh, the yeah. global north. And you, you can't just say, no, stop doing that and forget about all that stuff and move into something else. Um, now, is, are people going to be um, consuming meat alternatives and all these things that I'm trying to be in favor of in the future? I don't know. But is it going to be allowing more people to, as you said, nudge or shift slightly over? I think so. And I think it's going to allow for people for more choice. And as soon as these products become more readily available um, and, and almost commoditized, I think people, why would you want to continue consuming something, particularly if it's competing on price and maybe even cheaper? So I think those are the sort of hypotheses, as, as you touched on earlier, that I think we make here, uh, particularly at my company and, and myself. And, and I think once you are able to provide that at a, at a large enough scale, you, you might start seeing some real changes in the way that people consume. Yeah, I completely agree. And when you are a vegan and you commit to that, there's two points that I want to touch on. First of all, I don't understand why they get hate. Like, why does Greta Thunberg get hate? I've never understood that. Here's somebody who dedicated their life to trying to make the world better for all of us and just boatloads of hate mail. We are, we are a very weird species in that mm. regard. The people who are doing their best to be philosophical and to live with discipline and ethics because these things are hard. It's not easy to be a vegan, certainly not in this world. And then the second point is that when you're at home and you can sort of arrange your life the way that you see fit, you know, I can get a farm box from my local farm and have vegetables. I can arrange my life at my home the way that I like, but then throw international travel or throw something unusual into it. And that becomes so much harder. I traveled extensively in China. They'd never even heard of veganism in many of the places that I went. And when I tried to order things without meat, they looked at me like I was absolutely insane. When you're outside of the world that you control, it is way, 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 way harder to pick and choose what is available around you when you're tired and you're hungry and you just want to eat something somewhere. So it's an incredibly difficult thing. And I completely agree that I think a, a, a large percentage of the middle population, maybe the people who don't comment or send hate mail, but who just might be influenced by these kinds of things, I think we have to believe that given a choice between, okay, you could have this burger that has all of this baggage attached or this burger that has none of that baggage attached – you have to believe that a certain subset of the population will choose the one that has no baggage because that's an easy choice to make at that time, assuming that they taste the same or great and all of those other things, right? Yeah. I Look, so I think if you look at any new technology, there's an adoption curve. Um, and I mean, I think that's pretty well documented. Uh, there's the early, like early adopters and the innovators in the beginning that kind of bring everybody along and um, the late majority generally does come involved and, and so do the laggards. 
Uh, and it's just depending on really timing. You know, if it's if it's really is increasing utility to somebody, it's generally going to increase utility to most people. And you would think that it would take it, an entire population some level of time to eventually get like that. And I mean, you look at the way that we cons- again, the way that we eat conventional animal agriculture products at the moment. It wasn't always like that. It it it, it became just a way more efficient ways to get protein on plates. Um, the way that we produce chicken at the moment is just, it's incredible. I mean, what you, you, you grow a chicken in 21 days, 28 the speed days. speed is insane. Yeah, yeah. it's, and, and, and then when you're able to do that and, and, and a relatively controlled environments um, through the use of antibiotics and, and, and hormones and, and equivalents, um, yeah, it was, it was destined to do well. I think now we are waking up and saying maybe it's not the way to go. Um, so I think that's, uh, that's something that I do look at, that you can look at a lot of, um, different technologies that initially were looked at with great um, suspect or um, you know, mobile phones were useless in the beginning. There were, it was a massive brick. Um, and now they're, they're, they're the way that most people find their significant the other. Um, you know, the iPhone. I mean, the iPhone was seriously funny looking when it first came out. And it was, there was My a lot of hate mail on it. told me yeah. not to invest in Apple when the iPhone. I said, you got to put all your money in Apple in 2006. The iPhone's coming out. And he said, yeah, it's just a phone. Nokia has those too. I said, no. <laughs> but yes, I understand. Yeah, yeah. But that's, I mean, that's a good point. And I, and I think maybe also to give some kind of concrete examples of um, where, where I think maybe the market also helps kind of shift people's thoughts without them needing to really make massive adjustments. Adjustments, You know, for example, um, People would all, um, people, you know, horse riding was uh, the way that you got around a couple hundred right. years ago. Um, uh, horse and Wait, carts. Wait, you don't? And, and I still do. Uh, I don't have a couple <laughs> horses. I thought you need that's that in LA. Huh? That's what we do in yeah. California. Yeah, what do yeah. You do? Okay, that's good. It's organic. Um, no, yeah. so we, we have a lot of hills here, so we don't really, um, and, and mountains, so we don't really like that. Um, but, and, and, I, and I, I give this example all the time, and, and I just want to allude to this. Uh, you, you mentioned enlightened capitalism, but I, I've done a lot of presentations on uh, capitalism as an unknown ideal for animal liberation. And you can only imagine the kind of pushback that you get when you speak to a predominantly animal advocacy organization or group, like I've done in the past, talking about capitalism as a way to, yeah. So, so I've got friends still, but you know, there are not many. Um, and um, <laughs> the, 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 the argument that I... I'm right well, there with you. Yeah, okay. And I mean, you're in LA, and if you're touting that stuff, you also must get in trouble. Um, oh, for sure, but, yeah. All uh, I do is get you know, in trouble. Is it? No, that's good. I mean, I think that's, you're doing the right thing if you are getting um, people uh, responding. But if you look at um, horse and cart, and uh, that was the way people got around. And I think the, there's, this, there's this really interesting... Um, there's all these newspaper articles that had coming out of New York 200 years ago or whatever it was before the car was invented uh, about how New York was soon going to be covered and knee-deep in excrement. Um, and there was, it was an dis- impending disaster and everything was, you know, we were, there's no way people are going to change. Everybody has a horse. There's not, you're not going to change that. And then Henry Ford came along and he produced something that if you look at the original version of the automobile, that wasn't something that was, I mean, a, a horse was better. It was more reliable, it, you right. know, in, in, in many ways. It wasn't breaking apart and all that type of stuff, and it, you know, it could actually go faster, or, all those types of things. But it was still a bit of technology that was, it had a longer um, uh, potential, I would say, a lifeline than, than, than the horse. And, and overnight, 
eventually, not overnight, but eventually everybody switched and the idea of New York being covered in horse manure is, is, is forgotten and, and, and long gone. And I think there's a lot of versions of that you can talk about, whether it's whaling, dogfighting. Yeah. Um, my, my personal belief is that, uh, particularly in this conversation, is that economic growth is generally decoupled with the usage of animals. And as we continue to grow, um, yes, uh, 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 through, uh, in economic uh, terms, yes, industry that I do re- does require some level of animals, but over time, we won't require any animals to produce the delicious protein that people are used to and make it available at the prices and, and, and the places that they, they are also used to. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing that uh, New York is no longer covered in excrement. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, uh, maybe I was there recently. I was there recently. Yeah. It wasn't that, it was quite dirty as well. A, a different kind, but mm-hmm. yes, mm-hmm. It, it is true. You know, and of course the famous Henry Ford quote, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse, right? People don't know what they want or they need until it's, it's upon them. And, mm-hmm. and that is the, yeah. The trouble and the opportunity for people such as yourself who are ahead of the curve. The trouble is that nobody will understand you. The opportunity is that you can bring about some kind of change. Well, one of the things that I'm very, very fascinated with in general is what makes a person such as yourself go in on this particular idea? So you talked about San Francisco. You talked about Germany. You've traveled around. You've been a part of these advocacy groups. What made you to say, this is the problem that I want to solve, and this is the problem that I want to build a business solving versus anything else you could have done? Yeah, that's a good question. I probably would have had a less stressful life and a more stable income, um, but it's, it's been fun. Um, I think originally how it started is that I, um, as I said, I stopped eating meats, and, and people kept pushing back on me and, and asking questions and genuinely just interested in why I decided to, to make this choice. And so I didn't think I'd connected it to say like, this is a solution for the, the world at, when I was 20 odd. I just was like, personally, I think this is something that suits me. I did because people would argue with me all the time. Um, uh, at every occasion, we have something called a braai, which is a barbecue um, in South Africa. It's like, it's the how people socialize. Every occasion that there was a bri, people would ask me questions and, and, you know, there would be a philosophical debate that would get entered into. So I just learned a whole bunch of information because of that, because I had to um, defend myself, let's say. And in my final year at varsity, I, and, and, and this is also really where it started to get off the path, the beaten path, um, is um, I, um, I was about to write a thesis on the, ec- the economics around developing banks uh, developing reserve banks, so like your Fed. Um, so I was going to do like a little kind of overview, and and it's as I talk about it now, it's as boring as it was then that it is now. So <laughs> I won't, I, I won't continue. And, and and so then instead of that, I I literally had a bit of a crisis in in a computer lab at a university at like midnight, writing this thesis, and I was like, I can't do this. And what I just I opened up. Oh, what was I doing? And and I was like, you know. I even remember, like, my folks have always been supportive, but I think at that stage, because I'd take such, taken such a scenic route uh, to finish my studies, they were like, why don't you just do something kind of normal? Just write the, do the normal um, boring um, thesis. Anyway, I didn't. Uh, I started writing this thesis on the economics of vegetarianism um, in 2008, which at that stage was relatively progressive to talk about that stuff, particularly at an agriculture university like I was at. And... Um, I started writing this thing. It, it came so naturally. I, I did pretty well. And then I sent that to an alternative meat producer in South Africa called Fry's. 
So your equivalent of Beyond Meat, but the South African version. And they were like, well, we don't need an economist, and I don't think many people do, uh, but we can give you a job as a sales guy. And so that was the start. And I, I was literally driving around the country um, doing store checks with uh, uh, promote like and promoting this plant-based meats and bot burgers and all that kind of stuff. And that kind of gave me a lot of grounding. I did that. I think retail is such a good way to actually in any, if, if you spend some time in retail, you understand more about humans and human psychology than I think in any other uh, industry. No kidding. So you know, true. It's just, it's just, it's, it's, it's just incredible. And also, you know, having conversations just to detach or to detour, but Having conversations with guys like store managers and, and merchandisers, the guys that pack the shelves, you know, they have such a good read of how people behave. Um, mm-hmm. And then you can apply that elsewhere and extrapolate. And I found it very, very interesting. Anyway, um, I did that for a number of years and I ran, and they, that company allowed me to do um, a lot of campaigning work as well. And that took me into Berlin eventually. And so I was working, uh, um, and I'll try and speed up the, the conversation here, but like um, I was working in Berlin at an NGO that was working on food systems internationally. Um, and I was spending time and meeting people that were doing a whole bunch of things and cultivated meat was one of them. And I actually would have been more critical of cultivated meats um, about five plus years ago, maybe six years ago. Um, I thought, why spend money there when you can spend money in plant-based? It's plant-based food is getting so much better. Um, and, and so I was, and the ability can it scale, which I think is, Good relevant questions that maybe we'll tack into later. Uh, uh, but um, the I met people that had I met a woman that had grown a chicken nugget in a lab, and that blew my mind. And then I met more people that were saying this is possible and you can scale it. And then I spent some time in San Francisco, as I mentioned, and then I at Memphis Meats, which is now Upside Foods. I went actually to their facility um, and just saw this opportunity. And when I came back to South Africa. Um, 2019, so it's quite recently, there was no one on the whole continent of Africa doing cultivated meat. And the natural entrepreneur in me just said, this is it. And, 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 and that was, there's not much more to it. I said, screw it, let's do it. And I formed it with another guy um, who had a more technical understanding and, and the rest is somewhat history. What a cool story. And yeah, I love that we talked about since the 40s, things have changed dramatically. I'm rereading Plato's Republic, you know, the dialogues with Socrates. And one of the things that I didn't realize the first time, uh, Socrates was a vegetarian. And I find it very interesting that he's defining his new republic in that book and he's building it from the ground up. And he, he first suggests an ideal republic where people eat beans and legumes and vegetable stews. And then somebody says, what about meat? And he says, oh, you don't want a perfect society. You want a luxurious society. And I thought that was very interesting because a lot of people don't associate somebody like Socrates with vegetarianism, but a lot of people throughout the ages, a lot of great thinkers, even Da Vinci was rumored to be a lot of, um, even Seneca, the Stoics out there, people uh, throughout the ages who've thought about these things come to similar conclusions and other people perhaps don't think about these things on a, on a daily basis. But I like that we went from eating a little bit of meat to just it getting completely out of control in the last several decades. And that is not out of necessity. It is not out of uh, nutrients or nutritional value. It is purely a luxurious thing. Really humans do not need the amount of meat that they do to survive that, that, that they eat to survive. So I think it's a, it's a very cool concept that you've, you've struck upon. Yeah. Well, 
I, I also think the idea of, um, well, firstly, we're eating more than we should, and there's a large body of research that seems to suggest that um, you know, heavily processed uh, meat animal product diets are, are probably not good for your health. And I think that's, I'm, right. I'm, probably, I'm, I'm, I'm doing an understatement there. I think it's kind of well known and um, some of the leading causes of death uh, can, can be attributed to, to definitely a, a heavily processed um, meat-based diet. Um, if you look at particularly in the north, um, and there's some really interesting studies when um, global south countries had started to consume more animal products and what that resulted in, in terms of um, their health. And then the other thing of um, whether or not the way that we farm um, 60, 70, 80 billion, or, I mean, the numbers uh, you can't actually quantify animals per year on land, you know, the level of disease that is those animals are going through and the antibiotics and the final component is the the through the born diseases such as the zoonotic diseases that we've seen. Um, we've had some pretty hectic breakouts here in South Africa, and so so these are all things that kind of keep to it. And I think the luxury component, I mean, it makes sense. It's an aspirational um, product. Meat is aspirational. South Africa people become richer. We're a, we're a middle to lower income group country. As people become wealthier, they consume more meat. Um, the idea of thinking about it is is also a luxury for the folks like me and you. Um, who Agreed. can probably take a step back and say, uh, my, you know, my, my food choices matter, and I want to make um, decisions that are uh, aligned with my, um, whether it's my ethics. And uh, but you know, we're not seeing that, and 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 people also in the developing world are just not consuming meat at the level that we are seeing in, in the developed world. So they are they're, they're they're seeing this Western diet as something that they would like to aspire to, and um, and again, I think I think we definitely obviously eat too much meat, but it just happened in the, in, in the background. Uh, you know, the last 60 years, um, if, uh, in, intensive animal agriculture just it's just came out of nowhere. And, and I don't think people realize how good we, good we got at, at, at farming animals in, in that way and, and making it so that you're not paying the right price. So it's almost not even a luxury item. It's, it's, it's a subsidized item, right. um, the products that we purchase, particularly chicken. Um, and, um, you know, the, the industry is either subsidized directly through government or through like in your country, uh, uh, corn subsidies, et cetera. But, you know, I think, I think all these things are packed into to people not really having, you don't need to think about it. I think that's what no. it just happens. And you're encouraged and when not you don't to. Need to think, you're encouraged not to. Um, I mean, the level of advertising that the marketing budgets that these companies have is, is phenomenal. And, um, you know, you can't, it's difficult to compete with that. And, and, um, I, you know, there's some really, as you, as you touched on some of the thinkers that have thought about this, and um, I think Einstein's another example, but there's a lot of people that have obviously thought about it. Um, but there's this, uh, the ability to match your ethics with your food choices is difficult when food, taste, I mean, price, taste, convenience, and culture yeah. are these trump cards um, on, on the ability to make a, uh, the correct or uh, decision that aligns with your values. And in certain regions, it's much more difficult or impossible. For example, you know, here in California, we have a lot of vegan restaurants. There are options. Uh, I was just in Florida, almost nothing. It is very regional what is available, and that makes it easier and and more difficult. Well, of the three ingredients that you cut out, two of them fall into the same category, dairy and 
meat, uh, but specifically when you talk about carbon footprint, because again, there are many different philosophical angles into why this is a problem, from a human individual health problem to an economic problem to a greenhouse gas problem to a antibiotics to disease problem. There are many, many, many reasons to get into this line of thinking, but all roads point to the fact that the most damaging thing of all is maintaining this many cows. It comes to cows and beef and dairy and cattle because they take up so much land, they ruin the land, they release so much methane gas. And I think most people don't realize that cows produce more pollution than all forms of transportation on Earth combined, including commercial shipping, all automotives, everything, just cows. So there's one standout, even if you're able to separate the ethics from it and just say in terms of raw pollution and output and carbon, cows are by far and away the top of that. So the obvious conclusion is we could solve a lot of our problems if we just didn't have so many cows around. So have you done some, I mean, of course you've done studies, but how is the carbon footprint, how are the, how is your product different than raising a cow in traditional agriculture, yeah. factory farming? I, I think, you know, look, look, I'd also just refer back to, um, that, that example of, um, horse manure and, and, and uh, New York being taken over, like, um, you know, people could see the kind of impending doom, but when you need to go down to the shops and get on your horse, to use a silly example, it's just so difficult to shift um, a system when it's on the one track. Um, and I think uh, we're finding that right now, and there's a lot of people, Greta being one that you alluded to, um, about the impending um, um, doom. I'm, I'm probably not as, as much as a pessimist or about the, the future, but I think you know, it's probably going uh, to be a less interesting um, world when we don't have the same level of biodiversity that we have, and, um, particularly in our country. I mean, we've just got amazing uh, wildlife, but cattle uh, is just, it consumes that. And, and, and we are a water-scarce country, South Africa. Um, you know, we partially arid, and um, you, you just, a lot of water is going into the, the millions of cows that we, that we consume. So I think the first step is also just to say, um, I mean, the reason why people eat meat is it tastes good. You know, you can't, you can't just deny right. that. I mean, uh, uh, to, to, to say, I mean, you know, I think you, you, was it Socrates, lentils and beans, et cetera. Um, you know, that's not a one-for-one one with, a, with, a, with, a, with some steak, <laughs> you know, fillet steak or ribeye. I mean, that, that people eat that. I mean, you and I haven't eaten that in 10 plus years, but People eat that because it tastes good, and and that's and it, to try and say that it's it's a one for one with that, it's not it's not helpful. And I think that's what the power yeah, it tastes, of cultivating. It tastes incredible, not just good. It's, incredible. It's, it's not. It's, I mean, like people. I, I mean, Salt Bay on on Instagram. He's not really popular <laughs> at the moment, but I mean, he's got millions of followers. You know, not he because sure he's yeah, you know, not because he sprinkles salt, but because he does something magic with the meat. And I'm not in favor of of, of that. But the point is, is that it does taste good. Now, to get to your point, I think, yes, I think the environmental component, and we're seeing this in South Africa, it's becoming a significant driver for people to look at their food choices. Are people making changes based on that? Probably not just yet. When it comes to the comparison of what we do versus conventional, um, the starting point when I'd answer this question is always just to say, well, the process. Our process, from the time that we take a small relatively insignificant um, biopsy from a cow uh, to the time where we have, have burgers, um, that process in total takes three to four weeks. Wow. Okay, so from seed, from seed, from cell to burger, um, 
our process takes four weeks. Now, our scale is not there yet. We're still working on the scale of our production. But if our scale was at the product, uh, production levels which we hope to achieve in the next two years when we start producing tons and tons of meat, it still would require three weeks roughly for growth and about a week for maturation. A conventional process, the time that it takes to birth um, or impregnate, birth, feed up, fatten up a cow is 18 months uh, in South Africa on average. So 18 months of resources consumed, of um, methane released, of land usage, uh, uh, and, and then also then the process of, of slaughtering is, is, is quite an intensive, um, uh, particularly on water. We're doing it in the 18th of the time. So when it comes to the level of water, uh, land usage, and then also methanes generate, methane uh, gas generated, it's a fraction. It's a fraction across the line. Uh, I also do you know, caveat that to say energy usage, because we're a technical, highly technical process, it does require a bit of energy, which is equivalent probably to um, that of a conventional. But on the other areas, it's, it's just a fraction. Um, now, I'd also put another caveat to say that the industry itself, my, my industry, is only eight to 10 years old in a commercial sense. So the life cycle assessments that have been done are relatively limited on, on a few countries and a few companies. Um, and, and we haven't been able to uh, do one just yet because we haven't produced at scale. So as we develop and as we grow, we'll probably be finding even more, becoming more accurate in the way that um, the, the positive benefits that we can find for the environment that come from switching from a conventional beef uh, to a cultivated beef. So talking about that taste component, which is so important, it took you about two years, if I'm not mistaken, to get your first product out there from the research and development phase. How does it taste, uh, in your opinion? If, have you done blind tests with people? How did they react to it versus a traditional burger? Yeah, it's a, it's, um, it was a very daunting uh, moment when that first uh, burger was eaten uh, in April, <laughs> just of April of last year. Exactly. That was, you know, we did it. <laughs> yeah, we... we Look at Adam Zanzi. Um, we don't uh, we don't do things in, in half measures, and we we decided to do. Well, look, we'd redone tastings beforehand internally, but not externally. So the first tasting we did to any sort of external audience was with a uh, with a chef, and um, and a member um, uh, <clears throat> a member of our local government to to you know and, and a couple other people. We wanted to like do a bit of a rah rah around it and. You know, the first bite that those people had, I, I was sitting there wondering, oh, goodness, is this? And, but yeah, they, they, the, 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 the feedback was beyond my expectations. I mean, I haven't eaten meat in 15 years, so I'm not the best person to ask. But yes, right. I did eat, and I do continue to eat our burgers. Um, and it tastes like beef. That is, the, that is time and time again, out of all the tastings that we've done over the last eight months, and only eight months, so we've, we're constantly developing our product. Um, what we do have to work on is the structure, texture. Um, that's that's an area of improvement because um, yeah, we're, we're in our early stages of development in terms of the muscle tissue. But in terms of taste, uh, the umami feel, the, the, the kind of like, um, you know, there's certain things that like plant-based just doesn't do. And I'm a massive consumer of plant-based, but the smoke, you know, the, the smoke generated out of a when you're cooking a, a, a patty and, the, and, and the, the sizzle and the fat and all that cups, you know, we cultivate fat as well. All that stuff was just, it was beyond my expectations and the feedback that we've gotten time and time again has been 
tastes like beef. It's incredible. Um, so yeah, it was, um, it was, it's been an incredible journey. We, we took, as you said, as you, about two years to get from the R and D stage into the now like, um, R and D um, food development stage. And, um, and this year is all about expanding the number of tastings and expanding the scale so that more South Africans uh, and, and hopefully other people in parts of the world will be eating um, our burgers and enjoying them. That's fabulous. And one of the criticisms that you tend to get is, oh, it's a pipe dream or it's a fantasy. These kinds of things will never work. Now we can touch on this. We hit on it earlier. But will it, is this something that could truly replace the entire industry if everybody adopted it? So I think the technology needs to develop significantly. Um, if everybody adopted this, um, there would be a significant movement and resources to promote and accelerate what we're doing. I have little doubt. I think at the moment it's not an if, it's a when. However, I think the timeline might vary. Uh, if I could be um, uh, pretty transparent. However, saying that, the level of advancement that's happened over the last just 24 months um, is, you know, I wouldn't have been, I, I wouldn't have called it five years ago. You've got more companies working on the space, more resources in certain areas being pumped into ensuring that this can scale. And I think that has always been a question um, that many critic, uh, critics have had. Can this scale? Can you go from a bench top into a, um, a facility that can produce thousands of tons? Um, our company is on the way to get to that. We're still moving towards pilot production. But you're seeing companies in Israel and in the U.S. who are solving um, for these massive headaches that um, the whole industry has to come about and, and um, starting to produce out of facilities that can get into the millions of pounds of, of, of meat. There are two big hurdles that have to be jumped. Um, and one of them is the capital expense, the, what we call the bioreactors or the fermenters. Um, you can think about them if you look at a, 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 if you had to go into a brewery, those giant vats with a bit of a, with a computer that kind of controls a bunch of in, uh, inputs, that's what it is. Those mm -hmm. things currently, um, over the, well, particularly over the last five years, were prim primarily developed for pharmaceutical-grade um, production. And if you're in pharmaceuticals, it doesn't really matter. You can, you can, you, you'll, it doesn't matter the price point because you're making vaccines or the equivalent. So it's been very, very expensive to produce out of those, um, those fermenters. We're now starting to see the next generation of companies um, that are developing um, cost-effective bioreactors, and that's what we've been able to do. Um, bioreactors that can be one twentieth of the price. Um, that's what we're wow. aiming to get at. Now, when okay. you combine that component, that 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 um, that that capital expenses is such a difficult one to get started on. If you can get that right, you're moving in the right direction. Second component is the operating expense, particularly with around the um, uh, the media, the, the what, like our grass, what we feed our cows or our cells is a solution of. Of, of vitamins and, and in like um, inorganic salts and amino acids and fatty acids. Currently, that stuff is way too expensive per liter. Um, if you can reduce that cost combined with the capital expense, it's it's definitely a win. And I mean, I'd, maybe I'd, I'm talking too much now, but um, if, if it is of interest, there are some elements of the scientific limits on the cells, um, on whether or not they can um, produce at a, like the uh, uh, the quantity or the density of cell mass. Um, that um, people are predicting. 
Um, that's probably also quite a good criticism of our industry. But I think, again, um, there's enough smart people that are trying to solve all this stuff. It's just a matter of time. Yeah, it's baby steps. We've got to get there. And of course, there will be others who question the health aspect. Uh, what can you say about that either today or in the future? Is it healthier? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you're not getting a boatload of antibiotics and some of the other negative things that come along with mm. it. Look, you know, it's, it's, it's been an interesting journey for me personally because um, I used to obviously promote plant-based meats. Um, so that was what I did. And, and there, there's, there's obviously an often um, an attempt to sort of discredit uh, cultivated uh, uh, conventional meat. And um, I, um, I think there's still a very strong case to be made about processed meats. Um, I think, you know, there's some probably evidence coming through that limited, and, and I might get hate mail from this, but limited amounts of animal products in your diet is probably uh, beneficial. Um, so if we're trying to recreate that those animal products, which is what we're trying to do, like for like to the cell, um, you know, we are trying to make something that is, yes, it, it is healthier than conventional meat because um, there aren't antibiotics and hormones, um, but it is still meat. It is meat. So if um, there's no ways that you can get around that. What is going to be interesting, and, and this is what we're starting to see now, um, is can you produce a meat with more protein, with no cholesterol, with no saturated fats, um, with high uh, nutrient-dense uh, vitamins uh, or, or whatever. Um, can you do that? And some people are already starting to do that, and, and, and we've already found that, um, on average, you might be able to get more protein. So you might be able to get more protein with less meat consumed, and if you're eating less meat, then I think it's actually more beneficial as well. Well, that's fabulous. And of course, anybody who's seen any, it's long understood that the differences in quality of meat can be extreme or quality of any product. You can see a bit of fish that is colorless and lifeless or vibrant. These things matter. People know that they matter. So the concept that not only can we just replicate it, we can do better then. That's one of the most exciting things about the future, I think. I, and, I, and I really want to sort of underscore that. And I find that frustrating, um, you know, in South Africa, um, and again, I'm alluding to, um, uh, you know, I know your audience is quite broad. So um, in South Africa, you know, the, the majority of all the good meat obviously gets eaten by the wealthy. And um, the, then the offcuts are actually quite popular amongst um, chicken, uh, chicken feet, chicken necks, um, uh, it's tripe, which is like um, innards. Now, imagine when the offcuts of cultivated meat is just more cultivated meat. So you can't really get the sort of hierarchy, should I say, in, in, in meat. And what it means is more consistent output. Uh, if we might be able to create steaks that are at the price point that everybody could afford, I think that's a kind of, that is a movement in, in a positive direction. Uh, and it does, does go down to the ability to have stable output, consistent output, uh, and better quality. You won't necessarily have such as the potentially you might not have this big discrepancy that we do see now where you've got like as you described the, the lifeless looking uh, fish versus some salmon with the, um, that's much more appealing so i think that's also a potential of this industry that i think not many people have thought about mm. well now that you've gone down this road a little bit now that you have fully immersed yourself in this project how do you feel on the other side? You mentioned earlier there's more stress. You mentioned earlier there's, of course, less stability in terms of income. Also, when you're getting things like hate mail, which are a lot of people who just sit at a desk all day, they don't necessarily get people critiquing their work constantly. 
Uh, how do you feel about all of that? What keeps you going in spite of that? Do you have any regrets about making this choice? Uh, do you have a North Star in all of this? Mm. Well, Southern Cross, yeah. Uh, oh, sorry. Southern yeah. Cross. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 uh, this show is just me demonstrating my ignorance publicly. That's all that it is. No, no it's fine. No, no, I, I just say, so, yeah, you don't, I don't want, it's, it's, a, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful view of the stars up here. So down here, so I, I thought I'd let you know. Um, look, it's also, you know, you, you said people, criti- like it's just strangers. I mean, it's bizarre sometimes to me. I, I, I've been doing this for so long um, in some way or form that, I mean, I don't, I don't think I'm an unpopular um, or maybe I am, but I, I don't think I'm that, I don't get the level that Greta gets, but um, sure. you do, it's just bizarre when you get some strangers telling them, telling you something about you and you're like, what? I don't even know you. Um, so yeah, I, I, that stuff does, I haven't gotten used to it and I probably won't. Um, it does, you know, it does cause some probably little levels of anxiety, but you know, the other way that I look at it is that I have to put up with tough questions from investors tough questions from staff, tough questions from um, in, uh, business partners, and, and the stuff just, you know, it grows, you, you grow thicker skin. Uh, so that, over the last four years, where I've, I've, I've gone down this entrepreneurial journey, um, it, I've definitely grown as a person to be able to handle that a hell of a lot more. And, I mean, I sit sometimes across the boardroom with um, an investor, and they, you know, you, they've given you money, and they have every right to question every single thing that you do, and you've got to keep your composure. And I think that spills over, I think, to my personal life, um, where I'm probably, I hope, a little bit more um, able to have tough conversations with friends and family when needed. Um, you know, to, to some of your other questions, I, um, you know, the one is on, on what keeps you motivated and, 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 and maybe, you know, are there some regrets? Um, I think the motivation component has been twofold, where I, my, you know, quick, uh, quick stop, stopover. My my dad worked in a corporate job for twenty years, um, and he got let go. You know, as they do, and 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 um, and you know, he actually he passed away quite soon after that. And I was about oh, eighteen, so nineteen. Sorry. Yeah, so it's, it's it was it was really tough for me and my sister and, and family. And um, but you know, everybody goes through these hard hardships, and 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 so did we. And you know, that whole process kind of really first said, I can't just go get it. I, I wanted to be a chartered accountant before this moment. And, uh, and, and I wanted to just go the corporate routes and I wanted to make lots of money. And, um, but that, that part of that and probably some other stuff in my past, I just really wanted to become independent. And that, that's been a massive driver for me over the last five to 10 years. It's just, I want independence and I want to be able to do um, stuff that motivates me. And, and, the ability to work in an industry that I'm lucky to be a part of, which is shaping the way, hopefully, that the rest of this, you know, how we eat in the future uh, and currently is just, is something that always does motivate me. I get up pretty happy every single day, keen to get to work. I love what I do. Um, I have limited regrets. I think some of the regrets would be along the lines, as I think most entrepreneur folk would be, is that you, you, you have a tendency to burn yourself out a bit and, really double down too much. And I think I could probably do a bit better at the, the, the work-life balance. But, um, you know, for the most part, I, I just, it's, I get, well, I, I get excited when I get to work. And two or three years ago, it was just looking at empty spaces and seeing how they develop and create value. And over three years, you just see something that was just an idea between two guys on a laptop develop into something which is brick and mortar, 
and um, like the car behind me. And, and I think that constantly with the, the need for independence and the want to have impact results and some of the other stuff that affects, you know, the day-to-day hardships of getting hate mail, it makes it pretty, uh, pretty easy. I completely agree. I feel very much the same way that, uh, the movie office space changed my life forever. Uh, independence is something that matters to me an incredible deal. And I've fought so hard the last 10 years of my life to achieve it and building my own agency and to, to, to do things on your terms because I just can't, as hard as this is, as t- and, and it is hard, the stress is very high, the uncertainty is very high, all of that is very, very true, especially when you do the work that I do, like client work, and you have multiple clients having meltdowns at the same time, and it, it can be incredibly overwhelming. But when I think about the alternative, I, I could that is still worse to me. It's still worse mm, to me yeah. to think about doing the alternative. So I have to try to remind myself, and I think we all do, that, oh, yeah, there's a reason that you did this. <laughs> it's not, you know, the the sane part of your brain chose this path for a reason, and that reason would be apparent if you had to go back for one day to do the other line of work that you left behind. I bet if you did one eight-hour shift, you'd probably be pretty sure that you're on the right path. No. Just no. a prediction. Um. But I, I maybe just, I, I mean, I know we're, we're coming close to the, uh, but um, yeah. I'm curious to sort of hear your, um, just quickly, yeah. I mean, your, like, the pushbacks, the sort of some of the things that, the trials that you've gone through and what keeps you going. I mean, I, sure. I, I started it just as a quick segue or side note. I, I started, yeah. my first attempt was a nonprofit, which is actually still going. I've got a Mm-hmm. really talented bunch of people that are running this impactful organization that does animal advocacy in Africa and I'm very proud of what they do um, and then after that I tried my hand at starting a marketing agency and that is the most stressed I've ever been in my entire life I mean, that's what got- I'm doing <laughs> Okay. That's me right now. right now. Yeah. Okay. So I was like, t- you know, it's time in, time out. You hire people, you get six clients, you lose a client, and you lose it. And then you, right. And that's the first time. And then I want to hear your just, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. But that was the first time when I woke up in the middle of the night and I like that, like deep breaths. So I was like, I haven't done that thing or this, this, and that. Or I have to pay such yeah. and such. And I don't think I can do it. So um, I, I, that I don't on a daily interview. basis. Uh, I also woke up two hours before my alarm clock this morning because there are so many things that have to get done. Um, yeah, that, that is very hard. And to be honest, I don't know what my full form is of my evolution, but I'll tell you how I got here. So I traveled a lot. As I told you, I, I, I went abroad. I lived in Europe for many years. Um, and then I moved here to LA. So I, I literally gave up all of my possessions at two times in my life. I was down Mm -hmm. to two suitcases at two times in my life. When I went to Europe, I had absolutely nothing. And when I came back to LA, which was 2015, a relatively short while ago, I also had absolutely nothing, nothing at all. Two suitcases, two cats and my wife, and that's it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I have learned, and I had a great job in the Netherlands. I was in the music industry for a long time. I was a DJ. I really love the music. Uh, well, I love music. I hate the music industry. I can say that very confidently. Um, if ever you're not going to get paid for months or years on end, it's in the music industry. They just have a habit of just not paying people for things, which is a very nasty mm-hmm. piece of that business. But uh, I knew that because, again, I have an international relationship, an international marriage, I knew that location stability, some people, they just buy a house, they plant roots, and that's the end of it. I knew that that was never going to be my life. I knew that was going to be impossible for me. 
So I knew that I had to be location independent. That was the, the beginning of my thought process. I had to be able to earn my living with only my computer from wherever I was. This is, you know, 10 years ago that I started realizing that and building my own company. And then it's, you know, what can you do? You research these things. Oh, I can build courses, which I did. Oh, I can take on clients, but I have bad clients that don't pay. How do I get better clients? What do I need to know? What do I need to provide? What do I need to do to give somebody much more value and charge a much higher price? And that train of thought led me to here. But the same thing is you can have a client, like I could have a client that's Philip Morris and I could help people sell cigarettes to kids and they could pay very much money. But obviously I think, well, if I'm going to do this, I would like to have a type of client that I believe in. If I'm going to invest my time and energy in somebody, I would like that client to be somebody that I actually believe in so that I don't feel like I'm doing this just for the money. And that would alleviate the stress as well. So this show is my attempt at uh, finding out people whose values that I share. And of course, there's a component of, yes, I would like to have uh, clients from these people because I think they're incredible people doing incredible things. And I've met some truly outstanding business owners through the process of this. So that is sort of where I'm at in this evolution today. Do I imagine that things could go forward from here to something different? Absolutely. It's always in the back of my mind that you could take these skills and think, okay, instead of doing all of this for all of these people, I could put all of my energy and team on one mission that's my mission and go the, the entrepreneurial route that you're going, where it's like, I'm going to build a product or something like that. Or, and it's always in the back of my mind, but I just haven't yet had that idea that I feel like I could go in on. And I've heard people on both sides of that equation. Some people say, oh, the service business is better because it's more stable and you can have more uh, clients and you're not tied to it. And of course, in the last couple of years, witnessing the difficulties that my clients have gone through in, the, in, the, in COVID and all of that stuff has really underscored that it, it can be tough on both sides, depending on what kind of business you're in. But I, I think that I want to grow this business with the right kind of clients, but also in the future for me, I think I could do a, a focus all on one thing and say, bye-bye client work. And of course, it's a secret dream of mine to do something like be a public speaker be an author, and to establish myself in more of that type of capacity where I travel around and get paid boatloads of money to speak at a large group of people. So that's a, a secondary dream. But I, I'll freely admit that I'm very much you know, in the middle of that process. Mm. Um, and I've achieved a lot of things that I'm very proud of. I've, to be able to survive here and to be able to thrive here is no easy task and one of the most expensive and difficult places in the entire world. And I'm grateful for that every single day, but I'm still going forward. I still want to do more. So that's a yeah. brief history of where I'm at. I like the I like the uh, way of saying evolu like the evolution. It's uh, it's a pretty apt and accurate way of describing because it's just at least I hope it it's is constant. Yeah, well, it's <laughs> just but it's but it's just const it's constant. It's like right. um, I mean that's where it comes from, and I think. Um, and I think that sets a lot of people apart, you know, people that are able to say, I'm constantly okay with that and I'm going to evolve and I'm going to keep moving and progress and different things up. And I also think there's a lot of people that would think, you know, my lifestyle is insane and your lifestyle is crazy because like they want consistency and, 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 and yes. to be able to understand things. And I think yes. that's, neither of them are really correct besides for what's correct for each person. Right. Um, yeah. So, but it's, it, it's, it is tough, but yeah, I think, um, I've done a lot of the public speaking stuff as well, and I didn't get paid. Every now and then, I get like a, a decent gig, but um, that's uh, that's like a it's a that's such a crazy 
unique gifts that just people people under undervalue it until they try and do it, and then they're like, "Wait a second, I'm not going right. to do this again." Um, so Still yeah, a that's a cool one to fear. keep. But it's interesting, yeah. you know, just to also because this show, I know we're, we're going over here and I want to wrap it up, but my show, the point of this is in a world full of haters, I did this because I want to celebrate people. I want there to be a voice in your head that says, hey, good job. You're doing a good thing because I think it's important for like-minded people to seek each other out and help so that it's not just criticism that comes in your ear so that, and I'm not saying that that's the case for you, but you under, I think you understand my point here. Yeah. So it's, I want to also tell people that I appreciate what they're doing good job so that that voice is heard. But of course, you know, I, I was doing music and that was all I ever wanted to be. I think I had the talent to be a, a world-class DJ and I've taught, you know, 25,000 people how to DJ, but I didn't, I'm not a world-class producer or musician. I'm not a Mozart. And so I had to make a very hard decision to leave that industry behind. Always been a very philosophical person. I very, very much enjoy talking and thinking about deep things. I hate superficial, shallow things. I just, I don't like chit chat or small talk. I only like talking about stuff like this. So I switched gears super hard. I left that world behind because I knew if I stayed in halfway, I would never fully commit to this next thing. But, you know, it, it has been a very challenging process doing the show and things like that because, again, you're, you're exploring what are largely unpopular ideas. And it was much easier when I was just saying, oh, do you, want to, do you want to know how to be a DJ? Here's how you can be a DJ. And people say, I want to be a DJ. That's all we need to do. And sometimes I think, why, oh, why did I choose a philosophical angle for my new life? Why is this thing when I could just say, you know, do you want to take better photographs? Let me review this camera. And then people from all walks of life can say, I love your camera review channel. Whereas now it's like every stance I make, somebody's like, well, that's stupid. Mm. <laughs> it's like, I, mm. But I do believe in this stuff. And yeah. I think what keeps me going in this kind of thing is it's not the external factors at all, but it is just these moments right here. Talking with people like you, reminding myself and all of us why we do it. I've never had a conversation like this that I didn't feel much better about after mm. so mm. that might and and i've come to terms with that might be the only reward from doing this and that's okay but i think that's it's intrinsic and um yeah, yeah i think um actually just it was a post uh, by i think the yc combinator creator or yep. one of the founders um like just i can't know it verbatim but he was just saying along the lines of that um founders need to look at the positives in their lives because in spite of the fact that particularly at the moment now fundraising so being difficult and everybody, um, you know, running for the hills, um, but still, so many good things that you can and uh, you can pluck out that are uh, would be overvalued, or actually rather, you know, humans are just hardwired to rather look at the negative. It's just it was important for our evolution, um, but now it's maybe not as much. We've got to work out how to like look at the good stuff and really value it. And yeah, you know, you're, you're touching on a couple of points with, you know, having somebody externally like yourself to come and say like, oh, this is awesome. Because um, you do get it, but you don't like, just don't listen unless you don't it's internalize like, it. Yeah, yeah, you don't internalize it. It's the so, one yeah. YouTube comment that you'll lose sleep over. But yeah. but yeah. we had an hour of positivity, and I know we've gone over, and I really am very grateful for your time. And it's a pleasure to have met you, and I can't wait to follow your progress. I know it's going to be awesome. So thanks, yeah. just thanks. very much for sitting down with me. We'll definitely stay connected. Um, can we give the website for the people as we wrap this up and also by the way the concept of mzansi is that am i pronouncing it correctly um the Correct, concept yeah. behind it of you know the feeling of coming home there's a dutch word for it and you might know afrikaans is called gezellig 
which is mm. one of my favorite words in the entire world. It's basically a similar concept from what I gather, but mm. this mm. feeling of home and community and all things good. It's a yep. brilliant concept for your brand. Uh, so what's the website? How can people support you? And then we'll close yeah, it out. Yeah, thanks. Um, um, Zanzi, yeah, just so if it's a Zulu word, or is it Kosa, um, which means South, literally, but obviously that's a literal um, translation because South, South Africa, um, but as all those other connotations, it's a, um, it's a really like, yeah, meaning of home. And um, also, you know, um, yeah, South Africans have got this uh, affiliation and affinity to, to the outdoors and stuff. So it just, it just captures a lot of things, particularly how we get our food. So that's what we were trying to achieve there. Um, you can find us on uh, uh, our website is mzanzimeat.co, uh, M-Z-A-N-S-I, uh, meat.co. I'm sure you'll link it in below and, and find us yep. on Twitter as sure. well as on uh, our LinkedIn page. We're pretty active there. And yeah, follow our progress, sign up for our newsletter. We're hoping to do some launches uh, in the second half of this year to the public uh, in terms of um, you know getting our burgers out there to more and more people. And um, we're probably looking at doing some partnership work and some exciting things uh, in, in parts of the world that's outside of South Africa. And that should also be coming out. Uh, or you'll find out more if you follow us on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Well, Brett, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. And uh, with that, the official podcast is over. <laughs>